So I'm happy to speak to you tonight about the topic that I have in mind, which I titled A Case of Mistaken Identity. Uh, But first I want to read a poem that I got from our dear Mary Grace from a fellow named David Budbill, and it's entitled Bugs in a Bowl. Han Shan, the great and crazy, wonder-filled Chinese poet of a thousand years ago said, we're just like bugs in a bowl, all day long, never leaving their bowl. I say that's right, every day climbing up the steep sides, sliding back. Over and over again, around and around, up and back down. Sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry, moan, feel sorry for yourself, or look around, see your fellow bugs, walk around, say, hey, how you doing? Say, nice bowl. (laughs) This poem to me seems the perfect description of the inevitable process that we uh, entered into when we got here and are, at least from my point of view, uh, we're experiencing the fruits of after several days. And that process is one of going from the, call it the narrow, the narrow vortex, the narrow vortex of self-preoccupation, of self-absorption, innocent as it may be, self-contraction, to that gravitational field, to the wider gravitational field of the Dharma, of light, of openness, of love, of compassion, of generosity, gratitude. Many people have talked about their gratitude. And this is the natural process of the opening of the heart. And in my view, the the way that I think of it, the way that I feel it, heart and mind are the same. No one's ever seen the heart that we talk about. No one's ever seen the mind that we talk about. These are designations that we make. But in fact, in the the Pali language, in certain places, the same word is for heart and mind, chitta. Heart-mind, it's called sometimes in the Tibetan tradition. And so when I talk about the opening of my mind, it's, with it comes the, the breathability of the heart. And I see that in, in everyone here. And this sense of mistaken identity is not so much what it is that you all express. That's not it at all. In fact, I look around this room tonight and I heard there was some question that came up during the Donna uh, questions about uh, the diversity program and what's being done. To me, this room looks like uh, a kaleidoscope of diversity, of different uh, race, gender, sexual orientation, religion, This is really a kaleidoscope. This room is a diverse room. And it's a beautiful thing. And each of you 
is unique and different. Each of us is. That's an amazing thing. And when I see you out here, and I feel myself as part of you, I don't think, oh, the divine is in you. The divine is in you. The divine is in me. The divine is... The divine is not just in you, it is you. And that's one of the senses I got, especially as Mary Grace was speaking last night about the vastness of the cosmos. We are part of the creative expression of life, perfect in our unfolding, not able to be any other way than we are, right here and now. Displaying our differences uh, and the creative way that uh, we, we manifest, each of us. We can see if we look at our individual differences, though we call it me, we call it mine, but we see that each of us is shaped by non-personal uh, causes. We're each shaped by culture, by parents, by by, um, by class, by our situations. We're shaped by so many things outside of our control. But that doesn't, and so that reveals our interbeing, our interconnectedness, our selflessness, the discovery that we cannot live alone apart from each other, that we, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, that we, uh, we interbe or we inter-are with one another. And so our practice acknowledges both the places that we, that we are bound in this intricate fabric or net of connection and contingencies and causes, conditions, and, and uh, dependently we arise together based on circumstances. And we recognize this interdependence, this, uh, the deathless nature of all of us, how none of us really, if you look at it, has a true beginning. You can't find the beginning to us. We're always related to something that came before. And this is an understanding of the deathless, of the selflessness. How can you take ownership of all of that which has come before that, that formed you like the sands of the Ganges River? Ganges River isn't saying, busy saying me and mine. It's, it's just expressing its nature as being moved by time and circumstances. So our practice doesn't just take us beyond our separateness and blank out our, just to blank out ourselves and to then pretend we don't really exist. Instead, it opens us up to the other bugs in the bowl. It opens us up to that wider circle of connection. And it, hopefully, over the course of a retreat like this, the widening sense that you may have, the more permeable your sense of yourself is, the more you, you want to uh, come out of, as Rumi puts it, come out of the tangle of fear thinking. He says, why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? 
come out of the tangle of fear thinking, live in silence, flow down and down and down in ever-widening rings of being. Perhaps you've gotten a sense of that being here. You don't feel so separate and isolated, even though we've paradoxically we've been doing this very solitary thing of dealing with our, our defilements, our hindrances, our challenges. It's so funny that the very thing that we struggle with is what, it's what tenderizes us and starts to melt away our separateness. That's the unique thing about humans. Our difficulties become the cause of our openness. I think that's unique to our species. But we don't blank ourselves out. We begin to appreciate as we see the flow of our consciousness the causes, the interdependent causes and conditions that bring us together. Here's what Thich Nhat Hanh says. He says, when you look into a beautiful chrysanthemum, we get the impression that this flower is full of the cosmos. Everything in the cosmos is there in the flower, including the cloud, the sunshine, the soil, minerals, time, space, and everything. It looks like the whole cosmos has come together to manifest the flower. The one contains the all. In a very earthy way, Martin Luther King, in a real sense, all life is interrelated. All persons are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be, and you can never be what you ought to be till I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. We start to get an intuition of this kind of connection as our, as our uh, small, little, uh, addictive, compulsive, personalizing mind begins to relax a little bit. There's more space. It's open and inviting. And we are able to write poems like the poem from Jacqueline Berger, who clearly had that perspective of, had the perspective of interdependence. It's called Why I'm Here. Because my mother was on a date with a man in the band and my father, thinking she was alone, asked her to dance. And because years earlier, my father dug a foxhole with his buddy, sick with the flu, asked, asked him for it, so he dug another for himself. In the night, the first hole was shelled. I'm here because my mother was 27 and in the 50s, that was, so, that was old to be, still be single. And because my father wouldn't work on weapons, though he was an atomic engineer. My mother, having gone to Berkeley, liked that. My father liked that she didn't eat like a bird when he took her to the best restaurant in L.A. The rest of the reasons are long gone. One decides to get dressed, go out, though she'd rather stay home. But no, melancholy must be battled through. So the skirt... The cinched belt, the shoes, and the life is changed. I'm here because Jews were hated, so my grandparents left their villages, came to America, married one who would cook, one whose brother had a business, married long time, married longing and disappointment, and secured in this way of the, this way the future. It's good to treasure the gift, but good to see that it wasn't really meant for you. The feeling that it couldn't have been otherwise is just a feeling. My family around the patio table in July. I've taken over the barbecuing that used to be my father's job. Ask him how many coals, though I know how many. We've been gathering here for years. 
so I believe we will go on forever. It's right to praise the random, the tiny God of probability that brought us here, to praise not meaning but feeling, the still warm sky at dusk, the light that lingers and the night that when it comes is gentle. When we're awake, we sense this um, connection. We come out of the tangle of me thinking and we live in silence, flowing down and down in ever-widening rings of being. So with the meditation and the teachings, we don't abandon our individuality. We acknowledge our relative differences. When I was thinking about this today, I was remembering a little book that uh, somebody who used to sit uh, in my group in San Francisco went traveling and working in Southeast Asia and brought back this little book about the disciples of the Buddha. And in the book, it was about at least 25 different disciples. And the Buddha had a name for each of them. The one who likes to be first in line. (laughs) The one who holds the tickets. The one who is skilled at metta. The one who likes to be at the front of the line, the back of the line. Each person, he acknowledged their unique expression of life. It was never, our our individuality in the teachings is never denied. But we don't stop there. The invitation is to look more deeply. Look more deeply to reveal to ourselves the interbeing that we have with everything. The fact that even as we sense our bodies here, I don't know how many of you realized it as you did some walking, but you actually don't experience foot on ground. That's a kind of secondhand version. That's a, that's a conceptual overlay. What you feel is the elements of earth, air, fire, and water as they play out, as they express themselves in the body when, that's, when the, that materiality is mixed with consciousness. But you can see, even as we examine this body, that it's not me and it's not mine. It's certainly an individual taking a certain shape for right now, but it's not ownable. As Jack Cornfield says, it's a a -a rent-a-body. Someone gave me this reflection on humans and the the selflessness of our our bodies. A little statistical analysis. It says, human beings spend a third of their lives sleeping Every person has a unique tongue print. There's enough iron in the human body to make one small nail. (laughs) A cough releases an explosive charge of air that moves up to 60 miles per hour. Does that sound like me and mine? Does that sound personal? Not so. But how much of the time do we spend my body, me, mine, Sneezes can travel over 100 miles per hour. It takes 17 muscles to smile and 43 to frown. It takes approximately 200,000 frowns to create one permanent brow line. (laughs) Most, (laughs) Most people blink about 25 times a minute. Do you think there's a blinker in there? Is there a blinker? 
Or does just blinking happen? We can take ownership. We say, I blinked. Is there a blinker? (laughs) I'll keep going. Sorry. (laughs) 20,000 times a day. The average person speaks about 31,500 words per day. Every breath we inhale billions of atoms that end up as heart cells, kidney cells, brain cells, etc. The average adult is made up of 100 trillion cells. If you unwound and joined DNA from the genes of the cells, it would fit into an ice cube. The string would stretch 80 billion miles. That is from the earth to the sun and back again 400 times. The body gives birth to 100 billion red cells, blood cells, every day. Every square inch of the body is populated by 32 million bacteria that are born and die in it. Whose body is it, really? (laughs) Humans shed 600... This part gets a little hard to read. Humans shed 600,000 particles of skin every hour, about 1.5 pounds a year. By 70, an average person will lose 105 pounds of skin. (laughs) <laughs> what did you say? You think I'd be thinner. You think, <laughs> you think we'd be thinner, right. <laughs> uh, most dust particles in your house are made up of dead skin. The body makes new stomach lining every five days. The body makes a new liver every six weeks. The body replaces a a new head hair every two to five years. The body replaces new eyebrows every three to five months. The body grows new skin once a month. The body replaces with a new skeleton every seven years. 50,000 cells of your body will die and be replaced with new cells while you listen to this sentence. (laughs) Radioactive isotope studies show the body replaces 98% of its atoms in less than one year. So in other words, at any given moment, parts of the body are appearing and disappearing. So if you think you are your physical body, which body are you talking about? The body you have today, not the same as yesterday. Then the, the other mistaken source, pl- location of identity is our, what we call our mind. It usually refers to our thinking mind. The flow of thinking. The flow of, of views. But really all these are, are conditioned uh, by past causes. And when we practice, that's one of the beauties of, of slowing down, and we start including in our field of our wider perspective, coming out of the tight, narrow incarnation in our thoughts, literally sleepwalking and dreaming in our ideas, to wake up to notice that we're thinking. And if we wake up enough to it, which I know everyone here did, you started to see the way 
those 65,000 thoughts that you have every day, how they just appear from nowhere, unbidden, uninvited, a waterfall, a flywheel of thinking, that these thoughts completely think themselves. And there, it is not possible. I just present this as not something you should believe, but something to pay attention to. It is not possible to find a thinker of those thoughts. The Buddha suggested that this notion of a thinker and an owner of this body was a quirk of consciousness that he called wrong view. This this mental factor, this little teeny thing that arises with the five, those five little things, those, that, fi- that heap called form, feeling, perception, mental formation, and consciousness, what we are, what, what we experience coming and going every moment, that within that, that uh, fourth skanda called mental formations, there is this distorted little factor called wrong view or avijja, ignorance, that mistakenly takes all of those, those little five things that are happening, mistakenly takes everything, thoughts, images, everything, takes it to be mine, personalizes it. And this view of my body, my mind, my feelings, my past, my future, my life, assumes that there is a self who owns all of this, who it belongs to. But even physics has looked into this matter. And in one study, it said, after more than a century of looking at it, brain researchers have long since concluded that there is no conceivable place for a self to be located in the physical brain and that it simply does not exist. So this concept of mine, of ownership, even though it may be useful for our, 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 dis, our being able to get along with each other, for individuals to... Uh, to function well together. In reality, there is no such thing as mine. Even this body we don't own. Even this mind we don't own. How do you feel as you hear this? Is it relieving or is it scary or something? I didn't say that you don't exist. In fact, you are just here in in living color and beautiful detail. But what I see before my eyes and what you probably experience directly before you can think is nothing like I, me, or mine. It's nothing like I'm so-and-so. It's nothing like the story of yourself 
the virtual version of yourself that plays through your mind. That version that plays through your mind, the one that takes ownership, the one that's not okay, it usually has a kind of negative spin to it, an, in, uh, an insecure spin, a fearful spin, a not enough. Something's not quite right. This is the definition of dukkha, this kind of queasiness that comes. But this version of yourself that plays in your mind, it's, it's a description of someone who doesn't exist. It's an imaginary you. You're here. I want you to all, and I hope you all have gotten a taste of, of really being yourself. That is, that taste, that truth, that nirvana is you. That truth is you. That perfect expression of life. The Buddha wasn't so concerned about your, that unique expression that's here. He was much more concerned about that virtual version that floats through your mind that you mistaken, that you mistake for the real thing. And because we innocently have spent so much of our lives misidentifying with the different, uh, the different tunes that play through our mind, we have overlooked that uh, overshot the, the truth of this very moment. The truth that is you before you can think. Your... See, this you is never a problem. The one that's here right now. Because you can't even find, if you don't consult your memory, you can't find any problem with the one you are here. The one you have a problem with is the one that lives in your, as we've been saying a lot, lives in your story. And that story that tends to misappropriate, misidentify with the body and unfortunately, the body's always getting old and being uncooperative. And so it, if your identity is tethered to your body, lots of insecurity. If there's a lot of me around the body. Of course, if your identity is tethered to your thoughts and feelings, wow, do they change. So many people described in the meetings how they were one way one moment, another way the next. We're certain that they were going to have a, a horrific retreat and they were peaceful and easy. One, and it constant change. Constant change. Which one? Which one was? Which one am I? And then that identity view, the Buddha called Sakaya Ditti. It's a view. It's not reality. It's a relative reality because it does appear in our minds, but it cannot capture the living reality of you. It can't capture the Dharma, the truth. But that personality view becomes innocently tethered to outer circumstances. 
how other people look at you, how the weather is. And for each of us, if we were born, we are subject to the, just in a general sense, we're subject to the eight worldly winds. Every single person. Another definition of birth. The leading cause of the eight worldly winds. Praise, blame. Gain, loss. Fame, shame, pleasure, pain. Did I do that twice? You get the point. <laughs> the other thing about this view, Sakaya Ditti, this self-view, is that it, it is bound up in time. Because, you know, of course, our body is bound up in time. It has a certain shelf life, so to speak. And our, our view of ourselves is very tied to that. And our body is changing, getting old. And time is continually running out. It's continually running out. We never have enough of it. Or we have too much of it. But the whole identity view, the story of you, the imaginary version of you, the one who really doesn't exist. And the reason I talk about it is because we need to get to know it. And we've slowly been shifting to where we can start looking. Oh, that's just a view. That's just a view that I came from yesterday, passing through today on my way to to tomorrow. The whole story of me is somebody who's, who's who's going somewhere. When in fact, I have never, ever, ever, and neither of you, ever left this present moment. We have always lived in the present. We've only imagined ourselves ever having been in the past. We're only in an unfolding present. And on top of that, there's been only six things that have happened ever. They've repeated themselves many times, though. What are the six things that have happened repeatedly in the unfolding present, as Alan Watts called the eternal now? Hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. I think I lost one, but... Yeah, thinking, cognizing, yeah. That's all. The rest, the way we experience our life, is an elaboration, is a story about all of that. It's really in the, in the immediacy of our lives, in the reality of our beings, there are just these six experiences always happening now. Even people who lived 300 years ago, they occupied, that word occupy, trying not to use it too much. <laughs> they occupied the present. We, we're actually in the, living in the same reality. But our mind creates it as they were back there. And we're going there. There's a culture, some tribal culture, I can't remember, South America or Africa, 
that has a completely different conception of time. They have the past in front and the future behind. Their whole orientation is different, but nevertheless, it's still conceptual. The past is ahead of you because you can see it. Future behind, you can't see it. But then there is the, the Mokan culture. I don't know if you've heard of the Mokans. The, the Mokans were, are a Burmese, a tribe on the coastal, a, fisher, a fishing tribe on the coastal waters of Burma. And, during the, and they live very much in harmony with the sea and with nature. And during the big tsunami that happened, whatever year that was, the more acculturated, modern acculturated fisher people uh, all perished in the tsunami, but the Mokan didn't. And so people took an interest in who the Mokan were. And they, one of the highlights for me was hearing that there were two words in their vocabulary that didn't exist. The word want and the word when. So I imagine if you take the word want and the word when out of your vocabulary, even this moment, let go of want for a moment, let go of when, and then just check your, the state of your heart and mind. It's hard to find a lot of problem because a lot of the, the story of me that's bound up in time is, is, is about what I want and when I'm going to get it. And the pressure of that, as we talked about the other night, those little reactions, pleasant produces liking, liking produces wanting, wanting becomes, produces the sense of becoming. It's very innocent, very fast. And the pressure of that spawns this, this search to feel the relief that I need because I want something. Okay, want has led me into a lifetime of searching for satisfaction. We do it again and again. We're born into that, that search. And it can be quite el- elaborate. I decided to share this poem from George Bilger one more time that really speaks to this the way that the personality view proliferates in our mind. And my sense is he had some perspective on, on what our mind does and how we create ourselves uh, in terms of when and, and want. This is a poem called Unwise Purchases. They sit around the house not doing much of anything. The boxed set of the complete works of Verdi, unopened. The complete Proust, unread. The French cut silk shirts which hang like expensive ghosts in the closet and make me look exactly like the kind of middle-aged man who would wear a French cut silk shirt. (laughs) The reflector telescope I thought would unlock the mystery of the heavens, but which I only used once or twice to try to find something heavenly in the windows of the high-rise down the road (laughs) and which now stares disconsolately at the ceiling when it could be examining Crab Nebula. The 30-day course in Spanish, whose text I never opened, whose dozen cassette tapes remain unplayed, save for tape one, 
where I never learned whether the suave American conversing with a sultry-sounding desk clerk at a Madrid hotel about the possibility of obtaining a room actually managed to check in. (laughs) I like to think that one thing led to another between them, and that by tape six or so they're happily married and raising a bilingual child in, in Sevilla or, or Terre Haute. But I'll never know. Suddenly I realize I've constructed the perfect home for a sexy Spanish-speaking astronomer who reads Proust while listening to Italian arias. And I wonder if somewhere in this teeming city there lives a woman with, say, a fencing foil gathering dust in the corner near her unused easel, a rainbow of oil paints drying in their tubes on the table where the violin she bought on a whim lies entombed in the permanent darkness of its locked case next to the abandoned chess set. A woman who has always dreamed of becoming the kind of woman the man I've always dreamed of becoming has always dreamed of meeting. (laughs) And And while the two of them discuss star clusters and Cezanne, while they fence delicately in Castilian Spanish to the strains of Rigoletto, she and I will stand in the steamy kitchen fixing up a little risotto, enjoying a modest cabernet while talking over a day so ordinary as to seem miraculous. The personality view is always in a state of, of um, proliferation of, of fantasy. The Buddha called this papancha, this compulsion to manufacture time and uh, desires, all because we want to feel relief from that basic uncomfortableness of dukkha. And what feeds it is this self-story that can't not be found in this moment in the, real, in, you, in the reality of this moment, what feeds it is our memory, which is a wonderful thing to do, to be able to, to think about what has come before. Memory is a fantastic thing. And hopefully we learn from experiences that we've been through. But there is a tendency to dwell in the thoughts of ourselves in the past and think of ourselves continually as having gone from the past, passing through the present, on our way to the future. And the fact is, even the present is just another idea. Even the word now is another idea. And our practice begins to give us a glimpse that begins to melt away, perhaps see the usefulness of these concepts, but melt away that that sense of isolation that comes when we don't see that these concepts, the past, present, and future, are just ideas. They don't exist in reality. There is no such thing as tomorrow. There never will be, because time is always now. And especially with the past, as my teacher in India said, the problem is everything's fine except for the word but. 
he always said, no buts. Because he said that buts are of the past. But, but, but. Do you ever know yourself, notice yourself saying but? He goes on to say, you need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. The boulders of the past rest on your chest. Destroy your life and freedom. Remove them by recognizing them as thoughts. Freedom waits, but most are engaged with something else. Don't tie yourself to anything in the past or the future because it will not work. Be attached only to this moment. When you hold to something other than your true nature, you will be disturbed. By holding attachment to transient things, you declare to yourself that you are not the fullness in which all is. And Hafiz puts it this way in his poem called Stop Being So Religious. What do sad people have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine to the past and often go there to do a strange wail and worship. What is the beginning of happiness? It's to stop being so religious like that. Well, the Buddha elaborated a lot about how we end up spawning this personality view. And it's as simple as the tendency of our mind to, as he put it, say, therein, thereby, this means this, this means that. And our mind moves beyond things just as they are. Yata Buddha. And he said in one of his famous teachings, and this is a lousy translation, I forgot the one in my room, the good one. He said, Baia, you should train yourself with respect to the scene, what you see. There will be merely just what's seen. And with respect to what's heard, there will be just the heard. Respect to what's sensed, just what's sensed. Respect to what's cognized, just what's cognized. So should you, Baia, train yourself. When you, with respect to the scene, have it be just the scene with respect to the herd, just the herd, respect to the sense, just what's sensed, with respect to the cognized, just what's cognized, then you, Baia, will not be therewith. When you, Baia, are not therewith, then you, Baia, will not be therein. When you, Baia, are not therein, then you, Baia, will, will neither be here nor there, nor additionally in both. This alone is the end of dukkha. Now notice right now, it's another way of asking you, don't look back. Don't look ahead. Experience directly whatever it is that's happening right now without adding anything to it, without adding any view of yourself, story of yourself, personal history. See if in the simple moments of us being together, what is your experience? When, you, when there's no there, therein, no thereby. No here or there. Anybody want to say what you experience? When after your last thought has ceased about yourself and before the next one arises. What can you say? Anybody willing to say? Please. 
disoriented. Please. Sense of isness, like a reality. Please. Total peacefulness and presence. We did nothing but remove our story for a moment. This is a great opportunity for our practice to begin to see the difference between what our actual experience is and the the spin that goes through our mind. As James J. Audubon put it, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guide book says, believe the bird. (laughs) You know, I don't want it to sound like I'm trashing our personal story. Each of our stories is so unique also and interesting. And it's, it's born of all the circumstances of our lives. Of, it's born of trauma, of illness, of our cultural heritage, our religious heritage, all the, the diversity that I talked about earlier, our sexual orientation. All of that forms the way that we think about ourselves. And we've come to view ourselves in particular ways and reinforce that view completely innocent by the way we were talked to, the way we were described. I'm really concerned right now because I have an eight-year-old daughter who is really adorable. And she's really pretty. And I don't want her completely defined by her prettiness, but everybody tells her how pretty she is. Everybody tells her how adorable she is. Everybody tells her when she looks, when she dresses well. Everybody, t- and you can see how completely without any prompting, this view about herself is formed through these interdependent causes and conditions. This poem from Sharon Olds tells the story in a very poignant way. By the time I was six months old, she knew, something was <clears throat> she knew something was wrong with me. I got looks on my face that she hadn't seen in a, any child in the family or the extended family or the neighborhood. My mother took me to the pediatrician with the kind hands, a doctor with a name like a suit size for a wheel. Ha, ha blong, ha blong. My mother did not tell him what she thought in truth that I was possessed. It was just these strange looks on my face. He held me and conversed with me, chatting as one does with a baby. And my mother said, she's doing it now, look. She's doing it now. And the doctor says, said, what your daughter has is called a sense of humor. (laughs) Oh, she said, and took me back to the house where that sense would be tested and found to be incurable. When we misplace our, when we become too identified with our personal story, even though it has arisen through all these innocent uh, ways, we set ourselves apart. We feel like 
often feel like we're the one wave that has arisen on the ocean, but somehow gotten separated from the ocean. And often there's a sense of isolation, a sense of anguish that comes once we are born into that, into that personality view, when we are lost in our story. Because it's often, often a story of, of um, obstacles, conflict. And yet, when we, even when our lives, our situations are a mess in our lives, in the immediate present moment, the only pl- thing that, only where, only place that we can find an obstacle is in our memory. Nagarjuna lived in the 700 years after the Buddha described this process of becoming someone. says, Blocked by confusion, I survived by forging a destiny through impulsive acts. Self-consciously, I enter situations where personality unfolds, the world impacts on my sensitive soul. Personality creates self-consciousness, just as attention, the eye, and colorful shape trigger vision. Impact is the meeting of self-consciousness, senses, and the world. It leads to experience. I crave to have and avoid. Craving makes me cling to sensuality, opinions, rules, and selves. Clinging is to insist on being someone. Not to cling is to be free to be no one. That's the invitation in every moment of mindfulness. Free to be yourself, which is just no one as you imagine, but just whatever's happening, just present, that living present. Truth is so simple. Truth is you, as Kala Rinpoche said. Why don't we see it? Because there's a veil, such as the belief that you're a separate individual, that there's a problem. Free of that thought, there is within each of us, not within each of us. It's our natural state, an openness and a clarity. Try not to be clear right now. Try not to be open. Try not to be aware right now. And you'll see that it's primary, it's natural. Now it doesn't really jibe with the story that you have devoted yourself to, that Hafiz speaks about, that you've, that you've uh, bowed to, that you've prayed to, done a strange wail and worship. But freedom waits. But most are, but we're usually caught in something else. Perhaps you've had more of a taste. So when we begin to include Oh, I didn't finish reading this. (laughs) Craving makes me cling to sensuality, opinions, rules, and selves. Clinging is to insist on being someone. Not to cling is to to be free to be no one. To be someone is to be self-conscious, impulsive, thinking, feeling body, which is born, ages, dies, suffers torment, grief, pain, depression, anxiety. Anguish emerges when someone is born. Impulsive acts are the root of life. Fools are impulsive but the wise see things as they are. When confusion stops through practicing insight, 
impulsive acts will cease. By stopping this, that won't happen. Anguish will end. So we are in the process, at least from my point of view, we are in the process of moment to moment ending anguish. It is not possible to feed anguish and be mindful in the same moment. It's not possible to feed anguish and being curious, be interested, be present. Of course, we feel the fragrance of, or the, the, uh, the effect of, of, um, of anguish, can feel it as feelings, but when we feel the immediacy of it, it's so workable. Anguish. When it's taken out of the, the envelope of me and mine, it's anguish allowed to breathe. Even anguish. And so we, as we quiet down, we get a glimpse. It's something we can refer to every day in our life. That we didn't add anything to ourselves here. All we did was brush the dust of memory. Dust, brush the dust of our habits so that we could actually feel that clear mirror that we are. This is what Zen Hakuin Zenji said, all beings by nature are Buddha, as ice by nature is water. Apart from water, there's no ice. Apart from beings, no Buddha. How sad that people ignore the near and search for truth afar. Like someone in the midst of water crying out in thirst, like a child of a wealthy home wandering among the poor. Lost on dark paths of ignorance, we wander through the six worlds from dark path to dark path. When shall we be freed from birth and death? When shall we be freed from birth and death? My contention is that you are freed from birth and death right here. Birth and death are another idea. So as Rumi says in one of his poems, Inside this new love, die. Die now. Die before you're dead. Your way begins on the other side. Take an axe to that prison wall. Escape. Act like someone suddenly born into color, which you are. Slide out the side and die and be dead. Quietness is the surest sign that you've died. The speechless full moon comes out now. Get back to Hakuin Senji. (laughs) Those who meditate even once wipe away beginningless crimes. Where are all the dark paths then? The pure land itself is near. Those who hear this truth and listen with a grateful heart, treasuring it, revering it, gain blessings without end. Much more, those who turn and bear witness to self-nature, self-nature that is no nature, go far beyond mere doctrine. How boundless and free the sky of awareness. How bright the full moon of wisdom. 
truly, is anything missing now? Nirvana is right here, before our eyes. This very place, the lotus land. This very body, the Buddha. So a big part of our proliferation, of our entering into the story of me, that case of mistaken identity, that we can begin to shift and to notice, it generally comes in three big ways. It comes in the form of, of big desires, where we're going, the story of ourselves in time. It comes in the form, I think, of maybe the most painful way that it shows up is in what's generally called the comparing mind. That mind, those thoughts, that story of me that puts, my, puts me above, below, or equal to someone else. Do you ever do that? That measuring mind is describing somebody who doesn't exist. You're not measurable how high, how low. But we have, as Rumi puts it, we have two shops. He says, you have the nowhere where you came from, but that's one address. And then you have the address here where you're always, where you're always measuring. We have to notice, oh, there's the measuring mind. Oh, there's the, what the Buddha called mana, the, the uh, equality view. Yeah, I'm, I'm just as good as them. We're the same. Then there's the uh, atimana, I'm better than them. And then there's the amana, I'm less than them. And it could be less than an ideal, could be, uh, we often compare ourselves to ideals, and especially in spiritual practice. We can start to notice the comparing mind. It doesn't describe anyone accurately. And then all of our views our dittis, dittis the word for views, views about politics and religion, so much identity connected to that, we can start to make a shift from being bound up in that to noticing, wow, here's a lot of selfing around, around opinions and views. So mostly around desire and aversion, revenge fantasies, I've had a lot in my life. No, not really. <laughs> only toward some of my, my meditation teachers. <laughs> Desire and aversion, comparing, and just views and opinions about things. And this is one of the great functions of mindfulness. It, it wakes us up. It helps us step out of that tangle of me thinking. It helps us live in silence and flow down and down in ever-widening rooms of being. I'm looking for the poem I'd like to end with. So just hang out in the nowhere where you came from. Just like true nature, right under my nose. 
This is a, another Huff, Hafiz poem called Cast All Your Votes for Dancing. I gave you a little snippet from it the other night. I know the voice of depression still calls to you. I know those habits that can ruin your life still send their invitations. But you are with the friend now and you look so much stronger. You can stay that way and even bloom. Keep squeezing drops of the sun from your prayers and work and music and from your companion's beautiful laughter. Keep squeezing drops of the sun from the sacred hands and glance of your beloved and my dear from the most insignificant movements of your own holy body. Learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that may buy you just a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. You are with the friend now. Learn what actions of yours delight her, what actions of yours bring freedom and love. Whenever you speak of the divine, dear pilgrim, my ears wish my head was missing so they could finally kiss each other and applaud all your nourishing wisdom. Oh, keep squeezing drops of the sun from your prayers and work and music and from your companion's beautiful laughter and from the most insignificant movements of your own holy body. Now, sweet one, be wise. Cast all your votes for dancing. May all beings recognize their true nature. May all beings wake up from a case of mistaken identity. So thanks for your attention. Enjoy your reality and enjoy the fantasy of yourself as well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.